before we get into um, uh, Revelation chapter 3, I, I know we are expecting to go on in, um, in Chronicles, and we will very soon, but I, I thought that it might be worthwhile for us to uh, step aside for uh, a brief series on uh, forgiveness. Uh, it's an it's an interesting thing when I when I went to seminary, I was introduced to uh, practical preaching, um, that great biblical and later Puritan ideal of experiential and experimental preaching was set in front of my eyes, and I I recognized the. The excellence of it, it was something that I certainly wanted to uh, do, only to find that um, I had <laughs> I had very little gifting for it. When I actually got into the pulpit, my, my gifts were directed in a very different way. Um, uh, exposition of scripture and, and doctrine, that, that came readily to me in my youth. I knew that I needed to become more more practical, but I think two things were hindering. One, um, it's it's not my peculiar gift to begin with. But also, when I was young, I I just had comparatively little experience to draw on. Um, so I found the exposition of passages and applications that came pretty immediately out of that. That that was easy, but um, uh, practical preaching is something that I, um, well, it took me a, a long time to uh, feel at home in it. Took a lot, it took a lot of work and a, a lot of patient work, um, patience on my part and no doubt patience on the part of the people that were listening. But I also learned something else. In Reformed circles, uh, people always say that they want practical preaching. And there is kind of a, a romantic notion that is attached to uh, even the terms experiential and experimental. It evokes in us um, uh, Puritans in the pulpit or or Covenanters in the field. And when I took my first pastoral charge, uh, my my people were clamoring for for practical preaching. Now, as I mentioned, this was not my peculiar gift, but I wanted to be able to do it, so I came up with an idea. I thought, well. I will preach through the Proverbs, straight through, and um, and that will force me to be practical because it's certainly not a a theoretical or uh, bare notional book, but it's a, a practical work in its very nature, right? And I learned something very important. Uh, Reform folks say that they want practical preaching, but at the end of the day, mostly they don't. After preaching through a handful of um, chapters in Proverbs, 
the people were so incensed by the practicality that I was uh, I was in great danger of losing my ministry uh, at that point and and had to set it aside because at the end of the day uh, practical preaching will do a lot of things it will uh, give us practical direction for life if we're seeking direction that's very helpful right um, Frequently, it will provide a lot of encouragement in doing the, the right sorts of things. But um, it's also going to engage and address sin. And uh, the as the preacher's experience with both the Word of God and with people grows over time, uh, the addressing of sin tends to become um, a lot more pointed and uh, and folks can become uncomfortable. But here is, here's a resolution that you ought to make in your heart if you want to profit from preaching the way that you the way that you ought. If uh, preaching doesn't make you uncomfortable from time to time, then it's probably not doing what it ought to do. As long as you're ready to confess that you're a, that you're a sinner, then um, uh, from time to time, preaching is going to engage those those sins that continue to beset. And um, frequently, those sins aren't going to want to go quietly. Uh, there will be the excuses, there will be the blaming of others, there will be the blaming of um, uh, the preacher for even bringing up uh, whatever, but those things frequently don't go uh, quietly. So uh, it is with some measure of, of trepidation that I, uh, that I engage in these matters. I I might say it like this, um, as I become uh, acquainted with our uh, community, uh, those that uh, assemble through, through these means, uh, I do know that we have, we have troubles in our relationships, and um, at least a component part of that has to do with uh, the fact that we are not valuing our relationships the way that we ought. And so we are, we are having a harder time uh, forgiving than we ought. So let me, let me do a couple of things to try to set our, our general context, because I, I want to, I want to do what I can uh, to motivate you to spiritually engage with this with this biblical subject matter, and part of it is begins with remembering like the spiritual environment in which we live. Our fathers would have certainly called these uh, uh, declining times. And when we look at the, uh, obviously, the, uh, the general culture is going from bad to worse to the perverse uh, and rapidly uh, at, at a rate that is really in some ways quite stunning. 
Uh, but the but the church, rather than being the great bulwark against this, is complying with the defections of the time in, in a lot of ways. And it's not just, uh, say, the, the old denominations that are eaten up with the liberalism and all of that, but if you keep track of what is going on, even among um, some of the more conservative uh, denominations, you can see that there are many, uh, many in office in those that are are wanting uh, uh, more and more compliance with the defections of of the times. And this ra this raises questions: If we desire to ra remain faithful, well, what what can we do? If we, if we are honest and sober, we recognize that we don't have the power to do anything. I can't help myself, much less somebody else, and certainly can't turn the tide of what's going on in the church more broadly or culture or any of those kinds of things. So what, what do we do? It's with this in view that... Uh, wanted to bring in front of you the condition of the church in Sardis in chapter 3. And I think that we will, we will see the, the applicability to um, our current context. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So two, there are two general um, exhortations here from the Lord Jesus to, uh, I mean, immediately to the angel of the church. That would be uh, her ministry. But then I, I think fairly secondarily to, um, uh, to the assembly uh, under, the, under the influence of the, of the ministry. It is interesting that uh, he complains that there is a certain name or reputation that the church is alive when it is really spiritually dead. I remember years ago hearing R.C. Sproul he was talking about the uh, the statistics as they do surveys, the, the number of people that are professing to be Christians of one sort or another. And he said, I, I can't help but think that if all these people are, are really converted and mature, then, um, then certainly there would be a great uh, reformation in our midst and our, our, culture wouldn't be in these horrific circumstances. So he said that, so it seems there can only be one of two conclusions. Either uh, 
these people are largely deceiving themselves concerning the reality of their conversion. I guess the idea being there's fewer Christians than, than supposed. Or maybe there are close to that many Christians, but all in a state of infancy. And of course, infants, spiritual infants, will not do a man's uh, work spiritually. But we've got this name. Uh, there are many churches and church buildings are full. Uh, Sunday after Sunday, and yet, um, in spite of the appearance of life, it certainly does not look like it's having the effects of a living thing. So then we get um, uh, exhortations, practical directions, and I want to take them in the reverse order because part of this we, we consider quite a bit in our uh, series on church unity. Uh, if you look at verse 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Now whatever else might be included in this, uh, a doctrinal component can't be, uh, can't be avoided. He talks about their hearing, right? And the truth that they have heard and received, they are to hold fast, and they're not to let it go. So when culture is declining, and the church is in this very kind of a bad condition, part of the work is to um, remember the doctrine that we have received and heard, to hold it fast, to grip it tightly, and not to let it go. Right, during uh, during a, a season in which there is uh, uh, just widespread doctrinal declension, this is this is why the denominations just fracture and fracture and fracture and fracture. It has to do with the declension. Um, uh, but while all of that is happening, the the exhortation comes to us to hold fast to those things. But then, interestingly enough, we're told in verse 2 to strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. And when we consider um, our, our corner of the world, um, our, our relationships with one another in the, in the body of Christ, at least one of the things that remains is the relationship. So we're holding fast uh, the doctrine, but we are doing it together. And again, if you can think back to all the, the texts that we looked at on unity, where we um, talk about uh, doing these kinds of things together, um, thinking the same thoughts, speaking the same words, being uh, united in heart, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and so on. The relationships are something that remains. And so the Lord tells us to note the things in our context that, that remain and invest in them, strengthen them. And he, he even warns there needs to be a watchfulness concerning this and a warning they are ready to die. 
And if we won't heed the exhortation, die they will. And um, what the Lord has to say uh, to Sardis by way of threat applies to us every bit as much as it does, every much as, every bit as much as it did uh, to them, where the Lord says that he will uh, come to them, uh, as it were, visit them in, in a way of judgment should they uh, refuse to uh, comply. So this is, this is our current situation. This is our current context. And whatever else we might put uh, in the midst of the things that remain, certainly our relationships one with another uh, certainly fit that description. And so we are encouraged to be watchful over them, to invest in them and uh, strengthen them. And we are warned they are in a, a fragile and delicate condition. Turn with me now to, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we'll pick up with, with verse 7. But if we were to ask the question, well, given given the current context and crisis and the direction and trajectory of things, what sort of importance ought I to put on these relationships that I've already been exhorted by the Lord to, um, to watch over and to strengthen? And um, Solomon the Wise tells us, so pick up with me at, at verse 7, then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here uh, Solomon highlights to us, we might, we might say negatively, the, the value of relationships and, and particularly in, in challenging contexts. I mean, one is relatively neutral. Basically, when it comes to labor, two are better than one. There's going to be a better return on the labor. You see that in verse 9. But when we are in slippery places and when times are treacherous, we are in great need one of another. Uh, he warns, 
if one is alone when he falls, there's no one to lift him up. Uh, and he pronounces a, a woe on such a one. You know, this is a declaration of that being a, a miserable uh, condition. So we, we obviously are surrounded by um, uh, temptations from general culture, temptations from other professing Christians, to be frank, concerning um, uh, declension. Uh, increasingly, there are um, uh, tangible corporal uh, bodily dangers that surround as we as we head into into dark times and apart from repentance it's only going to get darker um, woe to the man that is a, that is alone woe to the one who has uh, sinned away his relationships and the, the aspect, there's a lot of ways to send a relationship away. But one of the ways to do it is, is through unforgiveness when, when offended. And that's, that's actually what I, I want to focus on. Hopefully it will occasion other thoughts about other aspects of relationships. But the simple fact of the matter is, among fallen creatures, if you cannot forgive you will not be able to have relationships, right? And uh, uh, the greater uh, your ability to forgive, uh, the, the better chances you have for being able to maintain relationships. If I could, uh, when, when we talked about church unity, I, I mentioned that our sins and each and every sin is a is a principle of division and when it's sent out into the midst of other sinners it's like a spark going into dry kindling right so when we sin we send out this spark and that's really all that that's necessary to ignite a, a flame a fire a wildfire in the midst of other uh, fallen human beings uh, you might think of forgiveness as being a, a wet blanket that is thrown on that spark. It, it has a great tendency to put it out and uh, prevent the fire and keep relationships together. Now, interestingly enough, I wanted to look at one other thing before getting into some, some motivations to really exercise ourselves unto improvements in forgiveness in God's providence, as I've been translating along with Matthew Poole, I just happened to be in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if you'll turn there with me. And this also helps, perhaps in a more positive way, to highlight... <laughs> Uh, the value of relationships, especially in, in uh, troubled times. God can use any means that he wants to keep David safe, but one of the means that he uses is his, his deep, rich, warm, and profound uh, relationship with, um, with Samuel. 
Uh, hold on one moment, please. Hello. Hey, come on in, man. How you doing? Doing all right. How about yourself? We're doing fine. Oh, we're doing good. fine. Sorry, super late, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> but you're here. That's yeah. good. Yeah, we're we're already into um, a lesson on forgiveness. Yeah. And we're in First uh, Samuel chapter twenty now. Okay. If you, if you want to pick up with yeah. us. So we were we were thinking about uh, the value of our of our relationships and of course mm. among fallen sinful human beings forgiveness is necessary to maintain relationships especially when we when we appreciate that we are in the midst of very difficult times mm. uh, spiritually and times that are getting more difficult temporally and uh, corporeally so first uh, Samuel chapter 20 we see how um, God blesses David with with Jonathan, uh, a comfort, no doubt, but also a practical help. And no doubt, uh, David David's soul blessed the Lord that he had been given such a gift in the midst of this crisis. Now, this is very early on. Jonathan is still questioning whether or not Saul really is of a resolute purpose to kill David. Um, perhaps Jonathan is thinking that this can still be worked out through discussion or something like that. So, so David and Jonathan do not agree about the situation, but Jonathan does interpose and offer to help David. So pick up with me at uh, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David sware moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, it is well. Thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant. For thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, 
there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself. For why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell it thee? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? Or what if thy father answer thee roughly? And so on. So here, um, Jonathan is um, uh, in this hard time a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, a very valuable relationship. And most of you will know the, the outgate of this story. Jonathan goes to the feast and sounds out his father. Saul has a, enough experience to know that, um, that Jonathan's heart is toward David in the asking, and he doesn't like it. He tries to kill Jonathan on that, on that particular occasion. And so David, uh, so Jonathan helps David uh, escape. He provides the essential intelligence that settles the matter. He um, exhorts David to flight at that, at that particular time. And that's not the last time we will see Jonathan appearing in David's life for David's encouragement in the midst of dark times. So again, uh, if we esteem ourselves to be hit, heading into dark times, our relationships are peculiarly valuable. The Lord Jesus in Revelation 3, as we saw, gave us an exhortation to attend to that which remains, even these relationships, and to seek their strengthening and to beware of, um, of their loss. But one of the ways that we sin away our relationships is with our unforgiving hearts, our inability to move past um, wrongs and offenses, but rather nourishing and cherishing those things in our in our bosom. So here's part of the part of the practical thing. If um, if these lessons are to have their their due weight and their due fruit, um, as a as a minister, all I can do is speak to the outside, right? I can I can bounce words off your eardrums, but at the at the end of the day, um, the practical aspect always has to come uh, with you, like you've. You've got to think about your own heart, your own relationships, the things that are taking place in your own life. Otherwise, these things will ever remain abstractions. Even if practical ones, they are abstractions until you think about them in terms of the concretes of your own life. Probably some of the things to identify, and perhaps you don't at this point think that think that your own unforgiveness is a part of the problem in the relationship, but maybe it's enough to start right now just by thinking about um, uh, those relationships that you have that are that are troubled, that that need some strengthening, and otherwise, as the Lord Jesus warned, are ready to die, are ready to 
are ready to pass away. Maybe identify those first in your mind and at least be open to the possibility, perhaps my, perhaps my forgiveness is not uh, perfect. Perhaps there is some improvement that is necessary in it. And perhaps that might improve uh, the situation. And to motivate you to, to do this and to engage and grapple with this, uh, I wanted to set motives, like biblical motives in front of you um, to, to stir you up, to animate you, to kindle the, the flame in this regard. So first of all, when we are forgiving one toward another, God is greatly glorified in us. Um, when you think about a lost and dying world, when it comes into contract with with Christianity, and I mean the real deal, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that causes it to marvel. They know how they are. Like if somebody treated me like that, you know, I'd I'd skin their hide. You know that, but to to see Christians uh, loving and peaceable and gentle with one another um, is one of one of the great marvels of the unbelieving world. But we also know the opposite too, right? When when a lost and dying world looks at Christian people and sees them at one another's throats, um, it does much to falsify the Christian religion and the unbelieving minds. It looks just like the world, right? These people talk peace and love, peace and love, but they can't let anything go. They're ever at each other about one thing or another. So turn with me to John chapter 13. Now this is right upon the heels of um, the washing of the disciples' feet before the before the upper room, but before the upper room discourse. Um, uh, let's back up to verse thirty-one and just take a take a running start at, at verses thirty-four and thirty-five. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. I'm sorry, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Um, now, I, I know that um, love and forgiveness are, are different terms with different meanings, and yet, of course, there is an entailment here um, as uh, believing people love 
one another. That is, they uh, delight in one another. There is a complacency and joy in one another. And there is a sincere desire for the well-being of the beloved. <laughs> of course, there's going to be buckets and buckets and buckets of forgiveness because there is a complacency, a joy, a desire for the for the beloved and a desire for their welfare. So, um, so forgiveness is certainly going to be entailed in this and is one of the great ways that love is demonstrated to a lost and dying world. As I mentioned, it is something over which they, they marvel much. Now look with me also at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now this might be what you might call a negative foil. If we are loving and forgiving one toward another, the world will say that we see and know that we are Christ's disciples and they will glorify him for this heavenly miracle that's at, at work in their midst. But on the other hand, if, um, if uh, there's envying and strife um, unforgiving hearts in our midst, uh, then at best we can be esteemed uh, babies. But that that glory that is due to our, our God, well, insofar as in us lies, we have obscured it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And you remember, um, we did a lot with the early chapters of 1 Corinthians in our, in our series on church unity. Uh, this is a church that is, that is upset with, with divisions uh, lot, over lots of different things. But one of the things is their, their teachers. They have picked favorite teachers and then they have kind of <laughs> fractured along the lines of, of those um, uh, manifesting something of a party spirit, in spite of the fact that there's no division among their teachers, all endeavoring one and the same uh, end, all teaching one and the same doctrine. Beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, I just want you to notice the contrast. When there's love, and as a component of that forgiveness, then it is evident that you are the disciples of Christ. When there's envying, strife, and divisions, don't you walk as men? You see the difference there? The, the contrasts. Verse 4, now it just makes it concrete. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, 
and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. So if you were to ask me how important is it that we get forgiveness right and that we get it implemented in our relationships, at least one way of responding would be, well, how important is uh, the glory of God in our midst? Is there anything that could be uh, more important? Do we not live and move and have our being for his for his glory. Now turn with me to, to Colossians chapter 3, another text that we have spent some, some time with. But as a second benefit is, as I've already mentioned uh, at, at, from the beginning, without forgiveness we can't, we can't maintain our relationships. And uh, Colossians chapter 3 really highlights this. So again, we're, we're going to do some, some reading, but um, the prayer of my heart is that the, the Spirit will open our, our hearts to the, to the word of Christ here in the scriptures. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, now, I just want to notice here some of the deeds of the old man that need to be put off and things that are the great obstacles to forgiveness, uh, anger, wrath, and malice. Verse 9, Why not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, 
which is the bond of perfectness. So if you look back at, at verse 8, we were exhorted to put off anger, wrath, and malice as the fruits of the old man. But think about, think about forgiveness and what we are encouraged to put on in verse 12. Bowels of mercies. Um, so it's so uh, graphic. Have you ever, like for those of you that are parents, uh, and you've had maybe like one of your children injured, like you you feel it in a very visceral kind of way. It's not just like a an intellectual problem to be resolved, like there is such and such an injury that requires such and such a treatment. We, we do have to deal with that component of it, but um, you you feel it viscerally on on your inside that that kind of bowels of mercy and compassion is being uh, commended to us kindness rather than a rather than a proud mind that exalts itself over a brother uh, a humility of mind uh, meekness or um, like a self-control that leads to a lowliness, long-suffering with wrongs, uh, forbearance, passing by wrongs altogether, and, and uh, forgiving them. And then uh, verse 14, you see a close connection with love, I've already pointed out, and above all these, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's a very Hebrew way of expressing it. Um, quite literally, it means the perfect bond, right? That love is the perfect bond. It binds us uh, together. He Hebrew as a language is comparatively poor in adjectives. So rather than saying perfect bond, they will use the noun and just put it in uh, like a genitive construction, the bond of perfectness, right? In normal people English, we want to hear the perfect bond because that's what's being that's what's being said. So that's what that love binds us together, and uh, the fruits of that love are all of these other wonderful virtues that we have just uh, that we have just read about. And uh, verse fifteen as a as a capstone, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. <laughs> well, I think we can see in this that um, the putting off of these vices and the putting on of these virtues, uh, these things are altogether necessary for us to um, dwell together in one body, in peace, and in thanksgiving to God. So how important is it for us to get forgiveness right? Uh, how important are our relationships? And hopefully what we did at the beginning is highlighted just how important uh, uh, those relationships are, and all the more so in troubled times. And we could go on in this, in this kind of way, 
in, in a couple of different ways, forgiveness is important to the self. Have you, have you ever seen a person, try to think, if you have enough experience, like with an elderly person who perhaps suffered a wrong in youth, never forgave, and it settled down uh, into the gut and into the characterist bitterness, uh, that, that person has been in bondage to that wrongdoing all of these years. Um, in some ways, um, everybody knows it. All you have, you wouldn't even have to have a Bible, and a lot of people without Bibles know it, that, that unforgiveness poisons the self, right? It poisons your own soul, and you remain in captivity to whatever that wrongdoing was, and sometimes for, uh, for your whole life. I, I once knew um, uh, an elderly woman. It all, I, I liked her very much. She, she was very uh, sweet. When she was uh, uh, young, she suffered some infidelities from her husband, and they ended up divorced. And any time he came up, man, she would she would flame up. Oh, that man! But all of those years, there was something about it that was so tragic. All of those years, she was in bondage to that wrongdoing internally. And so it was It was sad. It was lamentable. And it doesn't have to be that way. Christ offers us a freedom on our insides that comes with forgiveness. Those things that have happened, those things that have hurt, we are able to let go. And as soon as we are ready to believe and recognize that he is able to heal us on our insides faster than this world is able to wound us, we will be free indeed. And his power to heal is greater than this world's ability to wound. So we don't have to be uh, afraid and we don't have to be captives to old hurts. There's a sufficiency in our Jesus. But one final thing to motivate us, when we when we fail to forgive, we also sin against ourselves and our own comforts, namely the comfort of our assurance of salvation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We'll start at verse nine. You'll know that you'll know the passage very well. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Verses 14 and 15 are, are very sobering. And all fallen flesh ought to tremble to, to hear them. Uh, talk about something that will make a, make a person take forgiveness very, very seriously. Uh, of course, we know that it would be antithetical to all Bible doctrine to, to think along the lines of, like, if I forgive, then I'm earning forgiveness uh, with God. Even to say that out loud is nonsensical right like you you can't you can't earn forgiveness which presupposes your demerit i mean in some ways it's to talk foolishly really you but of course all of the bible will say you cannot you can't earn forgiveness with god or forgiveness is something he freely gives what's being taught here is something else what he's saying is, if you have really come to know the forgiveness of God, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus in saving faith, then one of the fruits of that relationship with him is going to be your forgiveness of others. And as you find yourself forgiving others, you know that you have come to know him and that forgiveness is yours. However, if we find in ourselves an unforgiving heart, it ought to shake the assurance of our salvation to the ground. It becomes an evidence that we've not yet come to know the forgiveness of the Lord ourselves. And so verse, verse 15 is very sobering. If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So this is another way of answering the question. If you were to say, how important is it for us to get forgiveness right? I might reply to you, well, how important to you is the comfort of your own salvation? Or with regard to the previous point, um, how important to you is your own psychological health and emotional well-being? All the world knows that unforgiveness is a poison to the soul. And of course, the Bible everywhere teaches it as, as well. So there are many motives, and it is the hope and prayer of, of my heart that this will be enough to move us, each and every one, from the big people down to the small people, uh, to engage from the heart with the study and to examine carefully why are my relations troubled, relationships troubled? And could a component part of that be my own forgiveness? There is much at stake for us, and may the Lord be our help in it. Let us pray together.